Hello and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are back continuing our mission into Mission Impossible 2 with our first of our two Spy Master interviews. Cam, who do we have joining us? Yes, we are joined by showrunner, director, producer, and writer extraordinaire Brennan Braga, a man who's associated with such beloved properties as Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager, Cosmos, The Orville, Salem, a whole lot more. He also co-wrote the screenplay for Star Trek First Contact and Star Trek Generations, and has a story credit along with his writing partner, Ronald D. Moore, on this week's film, Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, this is a very special moment for us, guys. I mean, those who've been listening for a long time, the spy hards out there, the diehards, will know that me and Cam have a mutual love for all things Star Trek. So to speak to the man, one of the people uh, responsible for some of the best moments in Star Trek history is a real special moment for us. And uh, we had a great time speaking with Brandon, but I do want to preface this conversation by saying that we recorded this quite a while ago now from time of release just due to our release schedule it got bumped around a little bit and we had to move mission impossible 2 further in time forward uh, so this actually was recorded before mission impossible dead reckoning part one came out that's right so you're going to hear some mentions about ai and things like that and you're going to hear dead silence from scott and i because we didn't know what dead reckoning was about we were not being dense that's just the other episodes uh, well we probably were just being dense but that's just like a underlying problem well, that's true enough. That's the heart of the Spy Hearts podcast, though. That's what brings you back every week. But uh, let's get to it, Cam. Brandon Braga, here's the interview. And joining us now on the show, he is a writer. He is a producer. He was the showrunner for shows like Star Trek Enterprise, Star Trek Voyager, and more recently, The Orville. And the end is nigh. It's Mr. Brandon Braga. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. <laughs> All the better for having you here, sir. I uh, can't wait to talk Mission 2 with you. There's a lot to unpack with that film. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, a big year. it's a big year for Mission Impossible, to be fair, with the seventh film coming out as well. I can't wait. It's the one movie I'm most looking forward to. They, they've been very like hidden. They're hiding a lot of the stuff with, with these trailers. So I'm looking forward to seeing it all fresh in, in the cinema. I actually, yeah, I've avoided uh, watching the trailer, actually. Um, because I don't want to know anything. Uh, mm. The only one I watched was uh, before Avatar. There was a special trailer talking all about that big stunt that Cruz does. Right. And uh, and which was just the most insane thing I've ever seen. And the most insane stunt since uh, the, the parachute jump in The Spy Who Loved Me, which Cruz is doing uh, without a parachute that I can <laughs> yeah. discern uh, <laughs> multiple times. Uh, but it's a real homage, I think, to that stunt, which was considered one of the great stunts of all movie stunts of all time. And that's what I, I think, like a lot of people, I love about the mission movies is that they do stunts. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I would go to Bond pictures, I love stunts, too, you know, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I can't wait. Um, well, I think before we get to talking about Mission Impossible 2. I kind of want to set the table a little bit. And for those who don't know a little bit about your work, just cast us back a little bit in time, pre sort of Star Trek Next Generation. What sort of inspired you to get into writing and producing, just getting into Hollywood in the first place? What, what sort of pulls you in? Seeing movies. Um, the first, just falling in love with movies. And um, I was a 
the first movies I saw were horror films. The first film I ever saw was called Tales from the Crypt. Nice. And uh, which uh, still kind of holds up, at least portions of it. <laughs> and um, and that had a huge impact and started my love of horror. Um, but my first, the first movie that just uh, really set the table for me was in 1977, not Star Wars, The Spy Who Loved Me. Right. And we all fall in love with our first Bond film, whether it's a good Bond film or not, it's debatable. I think it is. Uh, but the uh, that movie is what made me want to make movies. I wanted to know. I thought I wanted to be an actor because I just assumed that, that the people on screen were making all this stuff up as they went along. And, and then I found out uh, what a writer did and a director did. But it really was The Spy Who Loved Me, which I saw probably 20 times in the theater uh, that started my love of of movies and um my love of spy movies and so you know what was the first steps towards actually getting a screenwriting job at that point well i went to film school at uc santa cruz without any plan post school um and i i applied for an internship program with the academy of tv arts and sciences they put on the emmys every year and they have a great internship program uh with lots of categories and from hair styling to costumes to script writing. And I got, my internship was with uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. It was at the end of the third season of that show. Um, I love science fiction uh, and I knew the show. I did, I, I'd seen the show, I liked the show and um, I was lucky that that's where I got placed. And, um, and I was lucky that they were hiring new writers and uh, the, and um that i had a great mentor in michael pillar and that's kind of how it started mm -hmm. i didn't want to get into tv tv at that time probably deservedly was considered to be kind of a very much beneath movies you know people mm. on tv like george clooney uh wanted to get off as soon as possible and do movies kind of the other way around now mm -hmm. <laughs> so i've yeah, seen sure. i've seen an equinox uh here uh, but um but I learned very quickly that uh, TV was an amazing medium for writing. And um, it was, you know, I wanted to write and direct movies, uh, but uh, would find that being a television showrunner is kind of like being the director of a movie. Mm -hmm. Eventually I would get into movies um, somewhat circuitously and Mission Impossible was my third, the third movie I worked on. Was it difficult to transition from like the Star Trek writers room towards writing the Star Trek, the first two Star Trek TNG films into doing something like Mission Impossible? It was, um, I think my writing partner at the time, Ron Moore and I really learned, um, the hard way on the first Star Trek movie we did Star Trek generations, the difference between a TV show and a movie. And there are a lot of differences. Um, you need bigger set pieces. You need bigger ambitions. You can take bigger chances with characters that you wouldn't take on a show that um, that is uh, not serialized. Um, and uh, I think we learned to paint on a on a more ambitious canvas. And by the time we did Star Trek: First Contact, we had a better grasp of what it meant to write a good movie. 
And um, so when Paramount came, the executives at Paramount came calling um, after the success of Star Trek First Contact, because when you have a hit movie, you're, you're kind of the golden child for a while. Like mm-hmm. you've got a big smash hit movie, which First Contact was in the theaters, making shitloads of money and getting great reviews. Uh, suddenly Tom Cruise's people come a calling. <laughs> uh, and you, and um, that's how that started. You know, Ron and I got a call from Don Granger who, and John Goldwyn, who were the heads of Paramount Movies at the time, but, but working for Sherry Lansing. And uh, they said, Tom wants to meet with you for Mission Impossible 2. So for me, quietly inside, I was going nuts because uh, to me, this was this was a James Bond movie. Mm -hmm. You know, know, it's like uh, this was my way, perhaps even a path to doing a James Bond movie one day. So it was really exciting for me. I also was a huge fan of the original show and it. And I thought I still think the first Mission Impossible by Brian De Palma is the best one. That's just my opinion. I'm not far off of you there. Uh, but uh, the the latest ones are pretty good. Um, but um, so yeah. Well, you kind of cued us up beautifully there. I was going to ask how you got connected with Mission. So that's that's led us in. You've got that call. Tom's people want to talk to you. You'd seen the first De Palma film and you love that, and we do too. What happens then? Like you and, and your writing partner Ron get the call. Are you having meetings with Paramount? Meetings with Tom? What are the notes you're getting? And and what state was the film in at that point? Because I heard there was a director at some point and a script at some point along the line before you arrived. So, you so this this was twenty some years ago. So and you know I, I wish Ron Moore was here because he could help me piece together the memories. Uh, to my best of my me- memory, Tom Cruise. Uh, had an office uh really almost an entire building i think uh right down the way from our building our star trek building we were on the same lot so we met with uh to my recollection we met with paula wagner his producing partner first Mm -hmm. and we passed that test uh (laughs) just kind of having a general discussion and then we met with paula and tom in tom's office and discussed the franchise the first movie there was a script uh and it was uh, uh, penned by oliver stone um and it involved of all things ai oh okay uh, kind of a a, a a renegade ai that uh as i recall ethan hunt was up against an ai and didn't know it it was very it was a little too science fictiony for tom's taste and uh, today, of course, it would probably feel uh, a little uh, quaint, mm. uh, given everything going on with AI. But um, well, I was I'm mightily impressed that Oliver Stone had, had been working on a script. Uh, I don't know if he was attached to direct or not, but they wanted to start from scratch. Mm. And Tom liked Ron and myself, and um, there was a, a release date and there was some pressure to get get going and we just we we dove right in we started meeting at tom's house in every day um i don't remember what exactly month it was and what year it, it, it had to have been the year that first contact came out so maybe 
96. The movie came out in what, 2000 or? Yeah, 2000. So um, maybe, you know, I, but the, the dates are a little fuzzy to me, but we met every day at Tom's house for, for a long time and just started talking about what's this movie going to be? What does Tom want to do? And, and that's how it began. And the first film is so distinct with the Brian De Palma energy of it all. When they're talking to you about a sequel, like, do they have any directives? Is there any sort of direction they're looking to push the franchise? Well, the first movie was hugely successful. So I think Tom and the studio knew they just had to have something that was as good. Um, I don't know why De Palma wasn't directing the second one. Um, I was bummed. I wanted to meet him. He's an idol of mine. And um, they, there wasn't a director attached when Ron and I got involved. Um, I think Tom's approach was right. We got to find a good story. Um, it was definitely going to be a, t a Mission Impossible team-oriented picture, you know, because the first one really, I think some people didn't like the fact that the that Ethan Hunt's team was killed in the beginning and he was flying solo. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I didn't mind it. Uh, I like the movie. I love the movie. Um, and he ends up with Ving Rhames and, and, and a little bit a team later. So I don't know what people were complaining about. Uh, it was really just finding a good, a, a great story. And, you know, what I brought to the table was um, a template. And my favorite movie um, is also happens to be a spy movie. Um, it's my favorite spy movie and my favorite movie of all time is Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious, the 1946 movie with Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant. Wonderful film. And I love that movie because it's a great spy thriller. It may have been the first, one of the first, if not the first post-Nazi thrillers, you know, the resurrection of the Nazi agenda. Um, you would have to correct me on that. Certainly the first one I'd ever seen. It's got a great plot, a, a, a perfect screenplay, a flawless screenplay, and it's deeply romantic. It's also the most romantic movie I've ever seen. So it's kind of like this romantic spy thriller. And I said we should watch Notorious because I think no one's done a story like that. Right. And it has a deep emotional hook. You really like it's 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 painful to watch at times because you really want these two <laughs> to get together. Um, so we screened Notorious in Tom's theater, and um, that's how that started, and that is what the movie ended up being with a big motorcycle chase. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, of course, it has to have that. There's got to be a moment there where you're sort of slightly pinching yourself sitting in Tom Cruise's theater watching Notorious with him and, and, and Ron Moore and just thinking, like, how did I end up here? I was constantly nervous and stuttery. You know, it, after a while, I, I think I relaxed. But, um, you know, Tom Cruise is, was a huge movie star, you know, and um, I admired him a lot and I wanted to do a good job. And um, but he was just, you know laser focused on coming up with a great story period he was like a, a it was like a little writer's room the three of us well that's something i've heard people talk about is just like tom cruise's story instincts and was that something like you found when you're figuring out the plot of mission impossible 2 with him like obviously you know he doesn't have a writer's credit or anything like that but just in terms of like 
the instincts he has in terms of what he likes and what he doesn't, if you could give a bit of insight there. He has great taste. He, he, he knows, I mean, like any one with it, you know, it, it, good taste and good story instincts aren't something you can even really describe. You know, when something's right, you know it. I, I can, I, I'll use Fritz, the director Fritz Lang's language when he says, it's like sleepwalking. You just know what decisions to make somehow. Mm. And, um, and he just has great story instincts. He also knows what he, 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 in this case, had a lot of some specific ideas about some things he wanted to do. Um, for instance, he was uh, int very interested in how Ethan Hunt was going to be reintroduced to the audience. And where where was this character psychologically? And the, the mountain climbing sequence, the free climbing sequence was uh, a very er early idea that we worked into the story. Um, and we watched a lot of mount mountain climbing footage too. Mm. Um, and we always knew that's how the, the introduction of Ethan would begin. Um, I had an idea about, um, I love airplane thrillers. Um, that could be, it's probably not enough for a whole podcast, but there is a whole <laughs> subgenre of, uh, airplane thrillers. So I had this idea about an airplane sequence, um, and an involving a halo jump, which we had had a halo jump for Captain Kirk in Star Trek Generations. I got cut out for money. Um, I think you see him landing from it or something. Uh, it's in the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray and DVD. It's in the deleted scenes. Okay, yeah, it didn't make yeah. it in the movie. So I'm like, hey, we didn't use this. But halo jumping's a thing, and I've never seen it in a movie. And uh, I always had this fear about the masks dropping if you lose cabin pressure and then what what's to stop someone from putting knockout gas in the, in the, the fucking thing you know <laughs> so anyway so there were some early ideas and tom tom would hear an idea like that and he'd say he'd, he'd love it there were ideas i'm sure terrible ones that we came up with that he didn't like but it was really a quite just pitching stuff and talking stuff through and if when it, he loved the notorious template mm -hmm. And um, we kind of worked through that. Um, the idea of the uh, of the deadly um, virus, uh, the the conspiracy where someone was going to release a virus because they had the an the the antidote. Um, I want to say somebody saw a sixty minute special about something like that. I I can't remember where that came from. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, he just had good ideas and good instincts and knew kind of knew what i mean he you have ethan hunt sitting in the room like he he knows what ethan would do what he wouldn't do you know it reminded me of one of my greatest experiences ever was working on a, a spy tv show a spy thriller called 24. yeah and uh when i worked with Kiefer sutherland it reminded me of tom like he was the character he knew the character better than anybody in terms of just trying to like we're trying to fill in the blanks a little bit of the story because we know you've we've got yourselves and tom sitting in that theater we've got the bare bones of notorious we've got the entrance with the sort of free climbing and then we know that robert town is writing a script at some point of these ideas what i want to try and find out are the the concepts and stories that you guys came up with in that room with tom 
what you introduced to it and some of the things that maybe didn't make that too. Some of the good ideas didn't quite make it through to the end. So that that I can't remember really too well. What Ron and I wrote many drafts of the scripts. Mm -hmm. We were told up front that Ta Robert Town comes in. He will come in at some point. They were very upfront about that. Now, I mean, who's going to complain about Robert Town coming in? Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I don't know how many drafts of the script we wrote. Um, I don't. I wish I still had them. I would have kind of looked them up. Uh, and then eventually, Ron and I went had to go back to our day jobs uh, on TV. And then you know, I don't know what who came if Town came in at some point. I don't remember um, ideas that I'm sure there are things in Ron the draft that Ron and I wrote. Um, I'm sure those drafts had a lot of differences and things that didn't make it. I do know that we had a third act that was much more. Uh, involved in Ethan versus uh, Ambrose, kind of in a battle of wits, um, agent versus agent, you know, because to me, these here were two IMF agents, mm -hmm. right? Ambrose was was an F IMF agent, right? Disavowed guy. Sure. I'm like, these guys should go head to head. Like this, this has got to be Ethan's greatest challenge. And, it, and there was, it was a, much more of a cycle battle of wits and psychology and action that became a motorcycle chase right um and i'm not saying that's i have no complaints you know uh john woo's name john woo became attached to the movie as we were writing at some point and i do remember um the idea of a motorcycle chase coming up Ron and I never wrote the motorcycle chase. Um, we had left at that point, but uh, John Wu did get attached while we were working, and I and I remember thinking, this script's going to change because John Wu is John Wu. He's an auteur. Mm -hmm. He's made a lot of movies. This is like his twenty fifth movie or something. Like. Mm -hmm you know, he's going to want to make it a John Woo Mission Impossible movie. And in fact, it is the most, dis I think it's the most distinctive, uh, has the most distinctive directorial style of any of the movies. Um, you could say Brian De Palma brought Brian De Palma, but he's a very adaptable director. Like, you know, that's a De Palma movie, mm -hmm. but it's also a Mission Impossible movie. There's a lot of Woo stuff, you know, two two-handed guns, doves flying around and slow-mo slow-mo and stuff like that um so uh so i'm sh i can't remember a lot of the specifics i just can remember just generally speaking the movie had took a, a was a more of a, a game of of action and and psychology at the end which feels very bondian in a sense it's that whole like you know dr no and james bond sitting at the dinner table talking to each other while sort of verbal barbs as it were that sort of thing more mental than physical perhaps ambrose knows everything ethan knows he knows every trick in the book and so um we were leaning more into that approach uh and the movie does some of that i think my main critique of the movie is there's too much mask pulling yeah um you know i never liked that gag personally i think you get away with it once uh but there was a lot of that which I didn't love. Um, 
is did they keep in the thing where a guy wakes up and the virus has been released and, and they're they make him think that the virus has killed everybody yeah okay I should, you know, I should have watched the movie more recently. I should have watched it last night. I apologize. Don't worry, we did the work for you. Ask us anything. <laughs> but uh, that was a, that was something we came up with because um, that was a classic Mission Impossible thing, you know, those kinds of dupes. But uh, yeah, but I can't remember. There's a lot of specifics I can't remember. Well, like you talked about how you were a big fan of the TV show, and like this is such a different era in the year years you're writing Mission Impossible 2 for translating a TV show to the movies. So much of it is don't worry about the fans of the show. We have to focus on more of a general audience. But I was curious if there's anything you pulled from the TV show, or your memories of the TV show that you were trying to maybe inject into your work. I mean, just classic Mission Impossible things like the, the creating a fake situation to, to completely dupe a guy and, mm -hmm. to, you know, and, you know that that kind there you know and this message will self-destruct obviously and and details um it's like that but at that point it was already a tom cruise movie right I mean, it, it it was a little less of a um ensemble piece and more of a of an ethan hunt piece so it, it was its own thing already and it was going to just be m more action-packed because it's a movie it was going to have to have major set pieces and i think you know that i think john Wu brought a lot of that in you know mm -hmm. it needed something like that motorcycle chase at the end yeah i mean you can't argue with the results because the movie was a huge hit and i remember the iconography of that motorcycle chase being in every bit of the marketing and what people were uh talking a lot about that summer yeah yeah it was yeah it was a lot of fun and you know, the movie had a lot of goodwill because the first one was a success. And so everyone was like, okay, you know, we can take, relax a little, like if this is probably going to be good. It's kind of telling one of the bits of blowback on the first film was the use of Jim Phelps and him becoming a bad guy and sort of, it, sort of turning on the original sort of MI ethos and sort of not being a story film like you mentioned earlier and not being a sort of team up story whereas you do bring a team together in this film and i think it goes to show that it had someone like you at the helm to drive that forward because you know much as people could say oh it's an old tv show from the 60s no one cares you look at james bond films now people still want to have m and money penny and q in those films because it it's almost like it reminds you of home it's important they're good touchstones to have yeah and that's that was an important change in the second one it was going to be have a, a much more of a traditional blueprint um to it you know the first one i wasn't there i don't know why they did what they did maybe it's because it was tom cruise and they were it was a tom cruise vehicle they do put a team together later in the picture i mean you have to remember you do have to remember that uh for the great um cia break cia break-in sequence one of the great spy action sequences of all time in my opinion oh yeah um but um yeah this one this one felt a little more like the like the tv franchise and a john woo movie <laughs> and in terms of like more of a before we go to more of like the macro of mission impossible films and your experience like with it being released is there any other memories you have from that process of putting the story together with you and ron and and, and tom we had lunch every day. Uh, his personal chef made us uh, tuna, tuna, tuna melts every day. 
<laughs> Somehow I can't see Tom Cruise eating tuna melts. I don't. I just can't see him eating those things. Too many carbs. But uh, yeah, um, play. But uh, you know, it was just there were. I'm trying to think if there were any creative disagreements. It was just such a a, a delightful, smooth process, and Tom just was so, such a was a was a good, really great storyteller, and just I mean, look at the the Top Gun Maverick sequel. Mm-hmm. It, it's somehow is just pitch perfect. It's just, and I think that's I, I credit the director, of course, but that's Tom. Yeah, no question. Nostalgia is very hard to do well. People think it's an easy shorthand, but it's it's can be done very badly. You can't just slap a music cue on there. No. There's a lot more, a lot more to it. And I suppose then going through the process, you've then handed the story over. Robert Town's done his past. The film is being shot. Did you have any more involvement after that point? Any sort of help during the shoot, punching up, anything like that? No, no. We were back on our TV jobs, um, and uh, I actually had moved on to another movie. I think. Uh, Tomb Raider, the first Tomb Raider I worked on. But uh, no, Ron and I didn't have any involvement in the shooting of the film. Did you ever have any um, contact with Robert Town at all when he took over? No, no contact at all. I, um, I wish I had. I mean, I was a huge fan of Robert Town's. I think that was something at that time that Tom did on all of his movies. Town would, starting probably with Days of Thunder, I would, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Town would come in for a final pass at the script. Um, but I know, you know, now I'm just a fan. Um, I've read stories that they were having script issues on the set. You know, there's a, a recent interview with, uh, with, uh, Thandie Newton. How do you pronounce her first? Tandyway. Tandaway Newton. Okay. So I've been saying Thandie Newton's, uh, this whole time, by the way, her name and the guy playing Ambrose, um, Doug Ray Scott. Doug Ray Scott. Uh, I, I will say, once we got the notorious story going, Cruz had those people in mind very early on, even before the director was hired. Interesting. And they were up, really kind of hot, upcoming movie stars at that time. You know, I'd never heard of them, but Tom, I'd already seen stuff that they've been in. But, uh, you know, I was reading a story recently, um, just by coincidence, that um, they were having trouble on the first early days of shooting because the dialogue wasn't working and Newton was really insecure and Tom was just fucking hardcore, you know, and um, that it was a really intense experience. Yeah, I I read about that as well, where there was like the uh, they did like a role reversal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where they switch roles, and I can't imagine anything making us an actor in a huge movie with a big movie star more insecure. With a director whose English isn't that good, uh, she she was really uh, flipped out, you know. But she gave a great performance. I mean, yeah, it definitely delivered on screen. And like when you see the the finished film, do you know the Ambrose and Naya characters seem very representative of what you were coming up with at the time? Yeah. I mean, more or less. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying the drafts Ron and I wrote, I don't remember them well enough to even defend them, but, mm-hmm. you know, did the relationship between Hunt and Naya land for the audience? 
you know, in the way it did in Notorious with Cary Grant and Ingram Bergman. I don't think it did. That's a know? really tough bar. That's a very tough bar yeah. to set for yourself. <laughs> and it didn't have, you know, it didn't have that scene at the end where Cary Grant is taking a poisoned. I mean, you've even got the poisoning aspect uh-huh. of this, you know, where he the only thing keeping Bergman alive is Cary Grant literally saying, I love you. Mm-hmm. That's what's keeping her alive. I can't think of anything more romantic. I'm getting chills thinking of that scene. I'm happy to turn this into a a, a notorious discussion for the next half an hour because I, <laughs> I I freaking love that film. So yeah, this is, works for me. If anybody ends up checking out the show of 24 and season eight, the final season, it's notorious. Is it? I've seen all of 24, but I was very young when I watched it. I'm going to have to go back and check that yeah, out now. So Jack Bauer in season seven meets this uh, Renee character who's kind of a female Jack Bauer. Yeah. And in season eight, there's this horrible, notorious criminal. I can't remember his name or nationality, but uh, who had a relationship with her. And Jack has to send her in to pretend that she's in love with him again. And it's notorious. You got to check it out. It's not notorious for the whole season. There are 24 hours of, of episode. Sure. <laughs> but for a, but there's a good chunk in there where you'll see that movie. You're giving me some homework. I love it. There you go. Did you ever pitch like a notorious riff when you were working on Star Trek? No, I wish I had because I, I, I never really thought about it. Um, I wish I had, actually. Um, I, I would use it one more time in a horror TV show I did called Salem. And uh, the the final season of that show is notorious. In fact, this is incredibly nerdy, and I, I no one will appreciate it, but but probably me and you. <laughs> uh, but there's a notorious storyline in that show, and there's I there's a scene where the main male character is rescuing the main female character, and I recreated that scene with Cary Grant and McBergman shot for shot. Wow. Um, I, I, I sat down with our, my camera crew and we studied the, the movie and I wanted to recreate that, uh, not just the feeling different. It was different dialogue, sure. but it was the same emotional content of the scene. And this, if you put the two things side by side, I just wanted to, for fun, recreate that scene. That's how obsessed with notorious I am. Wow. You're going to tell me you also had like a shot of a key in someone's hand off of a balcony shot coming <laughs> down. That, I'd be very impressed then. I mean, everyone remembers that shot and it's an amazing shot, t- shot technically. Uh, but it, it's not the far from the best thing about the movie. No, it's, it is. I think probably the scene at the end where he's carrying her down the stairs or the build up to it where he rescues her from the house. Like you, you everyone want, watching it wants to go in and help her. You, Everyone wants to help. The, it has one of the greatest moments in screenwriting and this is relevant because it is a spy thriller um where claude rains catches carrie grant and ingrid bergman trying to find the uranium in the wine cellar and they have to pretend to be lovers in that moment to cover what they're really doing and they are lovers mm-hmm. but they're not lovers but but they have to pretend to be and all the emotional ingredients of the movie kind of have come together in that moment the spy aspect the love triangle it's just the one of the great script moments uh ben heck wrote the script a a screenplay worth studying well it's funny the day the day we're recording this interview we reviewed um torn curtain 
this morning. Did our episode oh. on that. And part of the genesis of that film was Hitchcock looking at Notorious and being like, I want to do something like that again. And he couldn't replicate it either. So, Well, I mean, you had Paul Newman. He was pretty... He was, he was, who was the woman in it? It's um, uh, Julie Andrews. Yeah. Love Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. It's not Ingrid Bergman. No. Nope. No. The key, no you know, the key to the Notorious 2 was just the, the bittersweetness of it all. You know, the mm. her character, her her kind of defrocked character, defamed character, uh, broken alcoholic. I mean, her character is just this tr- little tragic, fragile character that he's forced to make do horrible things. It's that he doesn't want her to do. And she doesn't want him to want to have her do it. It's the very complex emotions. Um, and that, how are you going to replicate that? Well, one of the strokes of genius of Notorious is also the Claude Rains villain, which I think is you can definitely see mirrored in Mission Impossible 2, which is that, yes, he's the villain of the movie and we want to see him you know, thwarted, but he's pre- presented as very human, where you have definite moments of like, okay, I understand exactly who this person is and the emotional journey they're going through, even though we want to see them ultimately fail. And, you know, he has to, he's in love. He's still in love, whether it's the Naya or the Bergman character. Uh, and that's that's his downfall. And his mother tells him it would be the case, and, and it was. Yep. Yeah. Well, last question I have about Mission, and I think we'll, we'll jump onto a couple of other topics. Looking back on the process now, looking back on the film, I know you haven't visited it in a little while, but just the film itself, is there a favorite moment you have from the finished product? Boy, I'm trying to think what my favorite... Uh, I love... I, I really like the airplane thing. I have a, even though Ethan Hunt's not in the scene, um, it's a cool sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, what was your favorite moment? I'm a I'm a big fan of the just the sort of mountain climbing opener, but that's mostly because weirdly, uh, I, it hit me at a right time because I was very much into sort of heavy metal and new metal at the time. So that soundtrack was very important to me <laughs> to the film. Yep. And the music video for Metallica's "I Disappear" used a lot of clips from tom cruise sort of free climbing up that that mountain so like that when i think of mission impossible 2 i think of tom cruise climbing and so that's the the moment i always go to i think you're i think a lot of people think of the motorcycle chase and they think of him climbing yeah i would say those two i also think of the first meeting of naya and ethan hunt like the whole bathtub th- uh, theft sequence which yeah that was a fun sequence yeah yeah, and I think there's a nod to to catch a thief. I think they reference it in the dialogue or something like that. But um, it's very playful, and it's showing a side of the Ethan character that just really didn't come across in the first film, where there was a bit of a romantic back and forth with him in the first one. But I don't think it works as well as it does any you know in the second. I didn't the Emmanuel but Emmanuel Benier, Benier, uh, I think it's Bier. Uh, I think Bier B R. Roman Polanski's wife, right? Um, I I didn't think there was a much of a storyline there and in this yeah you see a whole different side and i I have to say i don't know why i remember this i just remember there's a scene with him lying in bed with with the naya with naya and uh these big close-ups of tom cruise and i just remember thinking 
this is the most gorgeous version of Tom Cruise you are ever going to see. We all want that hair. <laughs> we all yeah. want that hair. <laughs> yeah, that, the hair. My God, the hair. <laughs> it was very much a case of, and I've been fascinated by this, like specific movies where you can just tell they were like, we need to make these actors look as beautiful as possible. And there's certain spy films you come across where it's like, it becomes about like almost the icon of the actor you're seeing on screen. And both uh, Tom Cruise and uh, Tendi Way Newton have that going on in this film. For sure. Glamour. <laughs> well, I did just have some curiosity as to your thoughts just on the evolution of the franchise, because, you know, obviously J.J. Abrams does the third one and it's continued on. What have been your thoughts? Did you have any favorites that have stood out? The last two. Yeah. I think every one of them has something cool about it. Um, but the Christopher McQuarrie screenplays are so good. They're really, um, they're just smart and tight and just, and graspable and, um, and he's a good director. I mean, so the, the last two really blew me away. Um, I thought JJ's was good. They had another romantic thing going on. And then there was the one by the Pixar guy. Brad Bird. The oh, okay. Here's something I just remembered. We had a scaling of the tallest skyscraper in the world in Kuala Lumpur ah. in our draft, and uh, and I remember being really excited because it was a, it was this new building at the time, and I'm like, Ethan Hunt's got to scale this building, and uh, that that made it in later <laughs> in a later move. <laughs> Much it later, took a while yeah, yeah. to gestate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting when I look at the mountain climbing at the start of Mission Impossible Two. That feels like where the franchise is going ultimately, which is that like Tom Cruise doing these death-defying stunts and increasing upon them with each movie. Well, and I think again, it may be a faulty memory, but the climbing of the skyscraper was kind of like this callback to the beginning of the was going to be this callback to the beginning of the movie. Here he was climbing with no safety net. This skyscraper for reasons i can't remember mm -hmm. um and yeah i mean he does it in uh in the ghost protocol is it ghost protocol yep uh so uh and yeah i mean the stunts and the particularly in the last two when they really kind of uh i don't remember any great stunts in jj's um i think it was uh, but um I feel like the shot they took from the JJ one was the shot of the missile on the bridge and him getting slammed in the car. I feel like that was the moment. But that's a visual effect. Yeah. Yeah. Where he flies toward the camera. It was yeah. a cool shot, but that was that was um that was a visual effect. Mm -hmm. It didn't excite me. Um and, and I and I've got some bones to pick with the recent Bond pictures and particularly the opening sequences. Please. Well, they're like the last one, um, it was all visual effects of Bond running through crumbling buildings and, and green screens. And it's like, what the what the hell? <laughs> like every Bond movies, where's the stunt? Where's that one stunt that blows you away? You know, Casino Royale had the the chase, the foot chase, mm -hmm. the greatest foot chase ever put on film. Like and, 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 the, and the fight on the on the um, the crane. Mm -hmm. uh jaw dropping yeah and and now they're just doing visual effects sequences it it, it pisses me off oh, mission impossible is more james bond these days than bond you know in my opinion 
what I was literally about to say. It's like I think they mission films have definitely taken the lead when it comes to who is the the, the spy action franchise that sort of leads the pack. It's mission now. It hasn't been Bond since I think maybe two thousand six. Uh, Skyfall. Yeah. Mm, yeah, maybe. I yeah. think. I mean, Skyfall. I mean, I, I'm a fan of Skyfall's first half. Um, I don't like the Home Alone stuff at the end with M it was just bizarre to me. And I don't want to see James Bond's home. I don't care about his childhood. I don't care. Like he's a sociopath. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, uh, no one, I didn't ask, but I thought Skyfall still had the, it, largely due to Roger Deacon's photography, actually, mm. um, which was just amazing. Uh, that that's the last Bond movie that to me had some bond, the Bond magic about it. What was the last great Bond movie in your mind? Oh, for me, it's Skyfall. Personally speaking, I I, I don't like Spectre. I don't mind No Time to Die. I'm not a person who's against the ending. Personally, I think it's good to clean the table and start again. But yeah, Skyfall was the last one I think that actually was punching above it, above its weight a little bit, like it was truly a James Bond film in status. Well, Spectre, though, they blew it. I mean, you're bringing Blofeld in, and you don't do anything with him. He pointed at a meteor a lot, but yes. <laughs> and I had big issues with uh, No Time to Die because, um, again, why is James Bond telling someone he loves them? He doesn't love anybody. He's not capable. He has a kid? <laughs> And I don't care if you're killing Bond off, but don't do it with a big Marvel movie visual effect. Yeah. Him on a mountain with a big missile blowing up the place. Like, I, I don't know. If you're going to kill Bond, it's got to be something, I mean, more personal somehow. I, it just was, it didn't move me like it should have, you know. Um, and by the way, he just killed about 900 guys with a machine gun. Like, what am I supposed to be feeling even? about this guy you know uh anyway that's a whole other podcast <laughs> <laughs> you just booked your second visit there i think there you but, go. At the, but at the same time i have uh i have so many many strong positive feelings of you know about daniel craig's bond so i, I it's hard for me to be too critical because i love i love his bond so much I, I do have a follow-up question for Bond, but I might save that to the end when we get to our sort of spy movie questions when we wrap up. But I know Cam had a, a, another topic to bring up. Well, I was going to say my hope with like the Bond franchise is they look at what Mission Impossible is doing, they look at what John Wick is doing, and that scares them into stepping more into the direction that they are known for, which is these practical stunts. You know, there's not a lot of movies from 1970s where people go, boy, we, we really need to try to top that stunt. But the fact that the Spy Who Loved Me one is still constantly referenced. You know, we've had stunt coordinators on the show in the past, and they've talked about wanting to hit that kind of level. You know, like, let's get back on that direction. The John Wick movies are more Bond than Bond. I mean, they're just unadulterated action movies. There's not a whole lot. I mean, the plot of those movies are hilarious. It's Here's the plot of everyone. I'm going to kill you. No, I'm going to kill you. No, I'm going to kill you, etc. Mm-hmm. So it's that, but on the other hand, they're great. Yeah. Because the action sequences are so creative and just plausible enough. Uh, and the last one, 
just was was almost it was it it was like some kind of transcendent experience the you know the mm -hmm. stair you know falling downstairs is a dangerous stunt and i remember in one of the early wicks there was a stunt where a guy fell down some stairs might have been the first one and i remember thinking people aren't going to appreciate how hard that stunt was mm -hmm. that was a hard stunt and then of course in the recent one it's there's a there's a 25 minute guy falling downstairs <laughs> sequence it's just one of the greatest things i've ever seen but i agree with you like i hope they take their cues a little bit and and go back to and go back to a little bit i don't know i mean like i really loved the and i don't remember the actress's name but but the the fact that someone else got the 007 designation i thought there was a really good dynamic with her and bond i liked their scenes together mm -hmm. and i wish the movie had focused more maybe on that somehow um what are they going to do now that bond is dead what what the hell's going to happen well i feel like we should be asking you you're the uh, accomplished writer well i've been telling my agent for years you've got to somehow get me involved with bond um, I have no idea. I mean, I've fantasized at times about doing Bond, a Bond period piece, like going back to the Cold War. Uh, but I guess you could, could call that a prequel. I just think it would be a cool place to put Bond back in his heyday. But moving forward, if James Bond 007 is dead, are, is it now a 007 movie? I don't think so. I think it's no. James Bond is coming back. Yeah. Why are they going? So are they going to ignore the fact that he was killed? I think they're just going to go close circle on that, where basically Casino Royale through No Time to Die is kind of its own little continuity, and we're going to restart with Reset. something else. Okay. Yeah. Well, then they should. Yeah. Then they should take a hard, a good hard. They should cleanse their palate, and they should take a good hard look at the at what that the form, uh, you know, what they're doing, mm -hmm. and go back to the basics saying this as a fan no no i mean i think their motto is generally go back to fleming and uh something like even like the moonraker novel has never been adapted properly like take some elements from that or run with it yeah bring back kind of the classic fleming style but again get back to more of the practical stunts that people love go back to casino royale mm -hmm. that was perfection yeah i agree that was my last favorite one yeah me favorite. too yeah. Me too. I mean, and even the ending where the uh, the uh, buildings are collapsing into the canals was done with spectacular miniature work. Mm -hmm. You know, miniature work so convincing. I knew when I was watching it, it wasn't CGI. Um, CGI probably couldn't have done it at that time. And I was thinking, how are they doing this? And it was just with these great miniatures, you know, again, practical kind of stuff and great stunt work. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Red Alert Spy Hards, we are shaking things up over on the Patreon page. That's right, we are launching an exclusive new show where we tackle the exploits of the small screen's greatest secret agents like Jack Bauer, George Smiley, and beyond. And don't forget, every month you also get two Agents in the Field episodes where we decode the adventures of your favorite spy actors in their biggest non-spy movies but cab tell the people what we have coming up next scott we're getting a little obsessive this week on agents in the field because we're looking at the 1958 alfred hitchcock thriller vertigo what heights of madness will this episode climb to so don't get left out in the cold help support 
your favourite spy movie podcast and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, let's get back to the spy jinx. Yeah, for me personally, the two things I've always loved are spy movies and Star Trek. And it's interesting that the first ever interview we had on this show was with Nicholas Meyer, who, of course, directed a few Star Trek films himself. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a few. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't chuck a Star Trek question your way, sir, because, you know, your shows, plural, were very important to me and still remain important to me in my life. And it's it's interesting for me. First Contact is in my top five films of all time. Now, that's personally from sort of a nostalgia perspective, uh, something that was, I saw it in theaters and I've been watching it ever since. And the one question I sort of had about Star Trek is, you know, you've done Generations, you moved on to, to First Contact. What about that for you is the, sort of the reason why it works so well? Because it's often held up against Wrath of Khan as the one of the two best Star Trek films ever made. Why do you think it still holds up so well today? I mean, I leave that to the fans of the movie to to really answer that question. Um, I knew, I will say that when we were writing it, when Ron and I were writing it, and when we were filming it, I, I, I knew we had a winner. And the reason I knew that is because we had a good story. Frakes was directing it really well. But we just had a good... Um, the Borg had not been seen as a full-on villain since Best of Both Worlds 1 and 2 came out in 1990. So it was like six years previous, right? Mm -hmm. So we'd been sitting on them. We didn't want to do anything with them. We'd been sitting on these villains until the right moment to unleash. So though they've been done to death at this point, at that time, that was their back was meant something. And it was the movie's more scaled up, expensive version of them. And sure. um, we had the Borg Queen, which was a new invention that was really cool. And I pushed hard for Alice Krieger because I had seen her in Ghost Story as a teenager. And I remember thinking, that is one creepy, sexy lady. <laughs> <laughs> the character she played, right? As mm -hmm. the ghost, the vengeful ghost. And... uh she was amazing as the board queen and, and i think so it had the action and the deflector dish sequence which was big and cinematic but and it had a vengeful kind of intense captain picard but it also had the alfrey woodard kind of entree character i mean the movie really is about the birth of star trek and the star trek nativity scene with the three wise vulcans coming out of the ship which I always called the, the nativity scene. And it was a way to usher a whole new audience and to say, what is Star Trek anyway? And why, you know, what do I have to know to watch the show? Cause I got that a lot when we were working on it. You know, why does that guy look like an animal? Well, that's a Klingon. Mm. And so we came up with this aspect of the movie that would, I think, really pleased the fans to see how it all began, but also in, in a way ex share with the rest of the world what why it was special, you know, why Star Trek matters and, and why people continue to love it so much. And that film really 
goes with the opinion that they love it because it depicts a future that you'd want to live in where that is all embracing and all inclusive. And um, that movie goes all in on that premise and, and, and that it's a future worth fighting for mm-hmm. and, and saving. Um, so I think those are some of the reasons, but it's also fun and it's action packed and, you know, so, I mean, what you, I mean, you would have to tell, you would have to tell <laughs> me, I mean, I, I had to throw one question at you. I'd be remiss if I didn't, because uh, <laughs> it, it, it's just part of it. You know what? You, you never know. You know, I, it's like, I thought, I, I remember we're, I was thinking this is a good movie. It's certainly better than generations <laughs> that for sure. But, um, I remember thinking this is a good movie. Now, was it going to be successful? I didn't know that till the first teaser trailer came out in the theater. This is when going to the movie theaters meant a little more. Mm-hmm. And the first teaser trailer came up, and the second people realized what it was, yeah, the, they started cheering. P- people used to cheer at trailers. I don't know if they even do that anymore. But uh, and I thought, oh, okay. I re- I remember that teaser in theaters, and I remember the excitement for it being powerful i remember like the tv trailers where i had like clips of the enterprise d cut into it for some reason for budgetary reasons there was a, a teaser trailer with that too well, we weren't done with the visual effects yet <laughs> right okay that well, that explains it you know 25 years later i finally got an explanation for that um and i i'm very aware of your time so i'm going to wrap us up i did just want to say threshold was an amazing wish we'd had more of that brent spiner and peter dinklage in the same show i mean that's i mean and carla gugino yeah exactly what what a waste i love that, that well show. you should do you know you should do a something about science fiction shows that should have continued when we run out of spy movies and lord <laughs> yeah. knows there's a lot of them uh we'll, we'll get to that the yeah. final question i have for you and usually we ask uh, every guest on the show what their favorite spy movie is but you told us off the top so i'm going to change the question what's your second favorite spy movie of all time well i mean i the the answer might just be a little too obvious, but uh, I, I have to think. I mean, the first thing that pops to mind is North by Northwest, mm-hmm. which is kind of the grandmother of them all. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. there are people who think who say, "Well, those are the precursors to the Bond movies," and and I say, "Well, no, the novels were the precursor to the Bond movies." Mm-hmm. Uh, but the scope of it all uh, and the set pieces is it's like. It's it's a it's it's a wonderful movie. It's just amazing. Um, I I really do love the first De Palma Mission Impossible. I think is has amazing set pieces. Um, I'm trying to think what the Spy Who Loved Me. I've mentioned as a person. You know, by the way, did you like the Spy Who Loved Me? Uh, this I, there's a guy named David Goodman. He's the former president of the Writers Guild. He's a writer on the Orville. We have big arguments about bond because he's a bond fanatic too he thinks the spy i love me is a terrible bond picture and i love it i don't know how anyone could say that honestly how who could say that with a straight face yeah. that's the definitive roger moore bond film and i think probably i mean i would put it in my top five yeah it turned the yeah. franchise around like it, it 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 it's kind of a remake of you only live twice in some ways in terms of the sure but and he didn't like that one either I think he he objects to the preposterousness of it. I guess the the because it verges on uh, what they call I guess spy fi. Sci- there's a there's almost a little science fiction 
aspect to it, but I'm like, it's great. It's and I actually love the story. I love the story with um triple X and stuff. With triple yeah. X. I mean, that that's a great dynamic that they yeah. have. She says she's gonna kill him. Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. It's it's probably the best bond. Uh, I, the phrasing is politically bad, but it's the best Bond girl. It's up there. But yeah. maybe the maybe uh maybe uh the Casino Royale Green. What um Eva Green, yeah. Green, uh, but um, so I would say uh, Spy Love Me on just a personal level. Um, but then you know if you want to look at something a little more serious, uh, I really don't think you can beat the lives of others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot people would point to the conversation, the Coppola movie, but I, I'd take that. I, I'd, I'd point to the lives of others as, in the terms of more serious, but no less absolutely riveting spy thriller. Uh, was, I mean, just amazing. And if listeners haven't seen that movie, um, it's on Amazon Prime. Rent it because it's great. Did you guys like that one? It's one we we haven't covered it actually yet on the show. I've purposely I've had a copy on my shelf and I've been putting it off until we actually record our episode review of it. So uh, I'm eagerly awaiting it. I'm going to say I put that off too, and I only saw it a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. It's maybe because it won it won the Oscar and everyone was talking about it. And sometimes when everyone's raving about something, I kind of like, yeah, yeah. But and I finally saw it, and I I was blown away. Yeah, blown away by it. You'll love it. You'll love it. You'll love it. It's been a very common one that we've had guests bring up as their favorite. So yeah, yeah. But then you know you get into. I mean, you could take it. What's your favorite one from each decade? What was the best '80s spy movie? Is a great question. Um, no Way Out, maybe. That's great. Great yeah, film. Kevin Costner, uh, Ronald Roger Donaldson directed. Very little appreciated movie. We had Roger on the show to talk about it. It's, oh, uh, you're kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got to um, listen to your show. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> but, <laughs> what did he say? Did he, any good bits? Uh, a few bits and bobs, but he did two more as well. He did uh, The November Man and The Recruit, if my memory serves. So we kind of went through all three of those films and uh, got a lot of Kevin Costner stories out of it. Quite fun. That That... That was the movie that um, that De Palma watched mm-hmm. when he cast him as uh, um, in The Untouchables. Ah, That's right. Yeah. Um, like No Way Out was the one that made him a star. As, as unless I'm misremembering the interview or the. I, th- I think I, something in the back of my mind tells me he's shot The Untouchables already, but you, I could be wrong. Could you know, well, then maybe it was a different movie. But I remember the De Palma documentary that came out a while back. That he had seen something, but anyway, no way out. No way out's a great '80s one. You could pick one from every decade. You could also then there's the the what is what's your favorite spy spoof movie? What's yours? Mine's mine would be uh, Top Secret. That's the one that typically yeah I go to because there's weird ones like you know Casino Royale '67 and things like that. But yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> that is such a weird fucking movie. You should do an episode about that because oh we did. I still oh we did I have it. a question for you guys. Oh, okay. okay. And I'm hoping you can answer it. Okay. So this, so there's the spy who loved me. It came out in 1977 and Richard Keel plays jaws with the big silver teeth. Mm-hmm. One of the great villains. Yeah. One year before that, 
there was a spy thriller written by Colin Higgins. I can't remember the director, uh, but it was called Silver Streak. Oh. Wilder and Richard Pryor. Right, yeah. Came out a year before that. Richard Keel plays a villain in it. And he has big silver teeth and bites people. Interesting. And there's even a sequence on a train where he kills someone. Same fucking character. Doesn't talk. Big guy with with silver jaws that bites people. And he's scary as shit. And he's kind of this crazy villain. What the fuck is going on with that? <laughs> well, you know what? We've learned... Do you know the answer? I, I don't know the answer to that one. But I can say that, you know... James Bond is often regarded as like the originator, but you go back to like the sixties and Flint movies, uh, Matt Helm movies are doing things before the Bond franchise even picks up on them. So I think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, thieving going back and forth. But this is so, but this is really specific. I mean, and well, I have some more insight on that and I can't remember which exact film it is. Cam, you might have to jump in, but I think it's one of the Matt Helm films from the sixties. There's a villain with a metal head. Oh yeah. yeah. Like a metal skull cap. And he's, He's offed by being picked up by a giant magnet and carried out the way, much like Jaws is in The Spy Who Loved Me, I think yes, it, it is. is. So yeah, they've taken they've taken elements, I guess, from that. And then of course the villain in The Spy Who Loved Me, there's a villain who has, I think, teeth. But yeah, it's not quite the same. Yeah. In in the book version. But yeah, that, that I, I wouldn't be surprised if Silver Streak played a part. But I'm talking about Silver Streak, which was a huge success at the box office. It, it was, was a nominated really for an Oscar. Popular. It was a exactly. It was a really popular movie. They have the same villain played by the same actor. They don't call him Jaws in in Silver Streak, but I have yet to find anything on the internet or any explanation for why these two movies have the same guy with the same teeth. Well, I, I think you've just booked yourself a slot on our review for Silver Streak whenever we get there, Brian. <laughs> yeah, which I saw recently, and I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I'm I'm watching it, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? Jaws is in this movie. It's also got Clifton James in it. Uh, yep. Mr. Um, what's his name? J.W. Pepper. It's also got a whole storyline about a, a, hit, a, a kind of a hick, a hillbilly sheriff with his with his dumbass son deputy. It's right out of Smokey mm, and the Bandit. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, which also came out in 1977. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is the same. These are there this can't be a coincidence it's the same exact characters but the jaws one richard keel we we got to look into that well when we cover silver streak we'll see if we can find someone associated with the movie that can answer that question all right good yeah <laughs> and then we'll drop you an email we'll give you the intel secretly yeah but um brandon i want to thank you um from the bottom of my heart not only for your time but for everything you contributed not only to Mission Impossible, but to Star Trek and to many, many people around the world. So, Brandon, thank you very much for basically everything. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Brandon Bragger. I want to thank Brandon for taking the time to speak with us. And I want to send a little shout out to a friend of the show, Mr. Mark A. Altman, that helped us with sort of the introduction with Brandon. Of course, they have a, a long history together through Star Trek. So thank you to both of them for their helping in sort of uh, illuminating this side of Mission Impossible too. Yeah, exactly. And I thought it was so interesting when we heard Brandon talk about Mission Impossible 2, how, like, Fairly similar, what they came up with is what wound up in the movie. And obviously, mm. you know, Robert Town 
did some work. He's the sole screenplay credit on the film, but clearly like the parts were all in place. Yeah. So I found that really interesting and that also that the notorious aspect came from Brannon. Uh, again, didn't know that. But one of the things that really jumped out to me as being super interesting was him just mentioning the Oliver Stone AI draft mm-hmm. that was scrapped for Mission Impossible 2 and that Tom Cruise thought was too sci-fi and too outlandish. So like this really did kind of like at the time mean nothing to me other than Oliver Stone is obviously a filmmaker I know very well. So it's interesting the idea of Oliver Stone writing a sequel to Mission Impossible. Sure. Potentially maybe directing it had it, you know, been greenlit that script. But like the idea that this was something that was kind of percolating in kind of the world of Mission Impossible, the idea of him going up against a rogue AI mm-hmm. is really interesting to me. And it kind of reminds me about some of these other franchises we follow where we find out years down the road that a sequel was kind of based on elements we'd heard about rumored decades ago or years back. And that seems to be the case, I think, with Dead Reckoning, that this whole AI thing, it's been in the ether for a while now and just didn't seem like the right time in the past. Well, yeah, you mentioned other franchises. I think James Bond is the one you're alluding to. But, you know, the the whole idea of the poison garden that turned up in No Time to Die, I mean, it it comes from the Only Live Twice book, I think. But it has been bandied about for multiple scripts over the years. It's been an idea. I think it's it's actually like a Wade and Purvis baby. They've been trying to get it into a lot of their scripts. So, yeah, that, that, that definitely translates over. And I appreciate it's interesting, obviously, that we recorded this before Dead Reckoning came out because we couldn't really appreciate at the time the information we were getting. But it is sort of funny to know that this... I mean, this AI was bubbling in the background the whole time. It's very AI-ish, isn't it? It's uh, it's it's that way. But it it it's been well. It's interesting that Tom Cruise sort of said it was too outlandish, too sci-fi to do. Whereas I guess now AI has become so prevalent that even Tom Cruise can't ignore it anymore. Well, can you imagine the year two thousand version of the entity? Like it may have worked for us in the year two thousand. Who knows? But like it would have aged, I think, quite badly. If they'd used CG, it definitely would have. If they'd like, done some sort of manifestation of it, like you know, like Demolition Man or something like that, that just looks absolutely awful. Yeah. Uh, that that wouldn't be great. Or like, uh, yeah, there's a lot of bad CG in the late 90s, early noughties that we could sort of point at. But yeah, I guess we wouldn't have had such a... Because nowadays you can open an app and talk to chat GPT. You can talk to an AI. We can we can tangibly understand what it is and what it's capable of. Whereas in the late 90s, people think AI and they think of Judgment Day. Well, yeah. I mean, when we log into Podbean, which is the service we use for our podcast platform, um, I now get pop-ups. Would you like to use our AI program? You know, like AI is everywhere now. So actually, I think it makes sense to have waited for Dead Reckoning. Mm. But... It's just interesting that they were kind of ahead of the curve with Mission Impossible there in the year 2000. Yeah, and obviously it took them a while to get it you know, pinned down, and, and that's the story we have now. And obviously we'll get that in whatever the name for part two is. We'll, we'll find out more about that then. I mean, something I wanted to just sort of highlight is finding out that the idea of Notorious was, was Brannon. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you ask me what my favorite spy movie of all time is, currently it's, it's Notorious. Mm-hmm. It, I, I know a lot of people would say North by Northwest is better. I, I probably would struggle to argue or articulate as to why, but there's something about Notorious that just sort of sits with me better. I, I, I just prefer that. And so whilst it was interesting to sort of see them ape off of that in Mission Impossible 2, what I found more interesting was to talk about Notorious with the, with the man who brought that concept in. And he clearly loves the film as much as I do. So just having that conversation was wonderful, really. Well, it's always fun 
when we get to hear filmmakers just geek out mm. over something. And clearly, Brennan loved Notorious, and was we got to talk about scene-specific moments in Notorious that really jumped out to him. He pointed out how he used the Notorious template in 24, which yeah. is really interesting as well. Uh, he would have liked to have used it in Star Trek in some way or another. And then, like, his kind of enthusiasm for the things he loves really came across both about Notorious, but also when he would talk about James Bond and the spy who loved me in particular. Uh, it's just great when we have people on who clearly love the the things that are coming out of their world. Because sometimes you get filmmakers who are like, I make movies, but when I'm not making movies, I like to do other things. I like to go you know, look at art, for example, or things like that. You can tell that Brandon genuinely loves the movies. Yeah, I mean, you know, just last week we had uh, director Matthew Vaughan on the show, another bumper moment for us, and one I'm really proud of. As part of our review of Argyle, you can go back and listen to that, as well as some non-spoilers if you haven't caught the episode just yet. But, yeah, he talks about his love for The Spy Who Loved Me as well. Like, it's clearly, it's it's funny that a film that came out in the early 80s has just gone on to be so influential to modern-day filmmakers. Whereas a lot of people would sort of dismiss the Roger Moore era for, for many reasons, some rightly, some wrongly. But you just look at what that film has produced. Well, I think it's a generational thing because actually Spy Love Me was 1977. I'm so sorry. Which was, yeah, which was the year of Star Wars. Mm. So like if you were of the right age, those two movies hitting in 77 would be life changing. Sure. And so often you hear people talk about Star Wars changing the trajectory of their lives. But Spy Who Loved Me, I think, also has that kind of impact on, uh, you know, because Brandon and um and Matthew Vaughn are a few years older than me, mm-hmm. so they would have been, you know, at that perfect impressionable age to be seeing the Spy Who Loved Me. And I can't think of many better introductions to the Bond universe than that movie. No, it's it's one I'll always herald as one of the best. I think that film, and it you could chart its influences in a number of modern day. Uh, spy films not just in the bond franchise but you know we mentioned it in uh, argyle is definitely a big part of that film too um but yeah like the notorious love which is great to have because you know we mentioned at the start cam and i have a a, a more than a fondness for star trek but you know a lot of love for star trek and and brandon has been a, a name i've seen on my tv screen since i've been a child so to speak to him about a film i love that isn't Star Trek was a, a very gratifying moment for me to know that one of the people I look to as a great screenwriter, as, as someone who understands what I love in Star Trek, also loves what I love in spy movies. And that for me just sort of, it was a very heartwarming moment. I'll just put it that way. And I loved when he went down the rabbit hole about Silver Streak and Richard Keel popping up with the con- Jaws metal teeth in that movie. Anyone out there, if you can answer that question about the connections between Spy Who Loved Me and Silver Streak, if there are any, let us know and we'll pass them along. But uh, I guess we'll have to do our own research as well. But I just really enjoyed hearing him just get really like geeky about that. And I have been in that kind of position so many times on the show where I'm getting obsessive about things. So loved it. It was so much fun. Yeah, that, that baton has been thrown down, folks. If you know what the connection is between Silver Streak and The Spy Who Loved Me and why that is, there's a similarity in, in the Richard Keel character there. We'd love to hear it. Drop us an email, spyhardspod at gmail.com or contact at spyhards.com, whatever you prefer. Or just reach out to us on social media at spyhards anywhere you look. But yeah, I mean, just an overall, this is our first of the two interviews we've got for Mission Impossible 2. And what a way to start. Yeah, so much fun, and I can't wait to uh, get to the next one where we'll have Mitchell Lieb coming on to talk about this soundtrack for Mission Impossible 2.
Yeah, I was about to throw to you, but you're setting it up for us beautifully. It's a, another great discussion about Mission Impossible 2. Stories about the time that, uh, you know, Tom Cruise and Fred Durst uh, butted heads. There's a lot to discuss, a lot to find out. If you're a fan of Mission Impossible 2, it is not one to miss. No, it is a really fascinating breakdown of the entire soundtrack industry really from the 80s up until the modern day and the evolution and obviously a whole lot of stories about metallica limp biscuit and more and past that cam next week setting our gaze to next tuesday what do we have lined up we will be tackling 2023's heart of stone with gal gadot this is a spy film that we tackled over on the debrief and reviewed it there on the patreon but other than that, we haven't mentioned it on the main feed, so it's about time we did, and we are going to do a thorough breakdown of this 2023 Netflix action film. We are always on the hunt for uh, decent female-led spy movies. There aren't enough of them. So this is Gal Gadot's chance at starting a franchise on Netflix. Heart of Stone. Will it make the knock list? You'll only find out next week, folks. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to firstly join us later this week as we speak to Mr. Mitchell Lieb as he takes us on a journey to through and to and beyond the soundtrack of Mission Impossible 2. And keep joining us next week as we take a look at 2023's Netflix spy film Heart of Stone. If you uh, want to help support Spy Hards, uh, we are always looking for your help help over on the patreon patreon.com slash spyhards different option price points to get in and lots of bonus content for you to unlock or just to show your love for all things here at spy hards and keeping the lights on at your favorite spy movie podcast if you don't already make sure you follow us discreetly on social media at spy hards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next time folks you'll find cam and i trying to connect the dots between silver streak and the spy who loved me.